This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week for a really fun conversation. ESPN's Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe. If you are a women's college basketball watcher or fan in the United States, they're women I do not have to introduce to you. Rebecca Lobo will be on the call of the Women's Final Four National Championship game as well as in the studio during the tournament discussing that. Holly Rowe will be on the sidelines for the Women's Final Four and National Championship game. Also, you know Holly's work when it comes to college football, calling uh, major games at ESPN. She's also a... um, like a, 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 I guess a floor analyst, I would call it, for the Utah Jazz this year. So she's added the NBA to what's already been a busy schedule, college softball. Again, um, there's few, I mean, I've said this many times, including when Holly's on the broadcast. One, she's probably the most liked person at ESPN in terms of being an on-air talent. And two, just incredibly valuable in that pretty much every production she's a part of is usually a quality production and then obviously Rebecca Lobo goes without saying is a great basketball analyst and uh, has done such great work when it comes to that sport so we get into a lot of stuff with um, women's basketball in the tournament I think you'll enjoy it it's not just sort of on court stuff even though we spent the last 25 minutes talking about the storylines but I asked them about um, you know their preparation for the tournament how this tournament is different based on the NCAA's equity changes and uh, gambling in women's basketball and whether that would increase the popularity. So we get into a lot of different things. I think you'll enjoy it. So Holly Rowe and Rebecca Lobo coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, I gave them an intro at the top. So you know who these um, women are. They're two of ESPN's best. They've been exceptional at their roles for a long time. So I know Jimmy Pitaro has a lot of people listening to this podcast. So report back to uh, Mr. Pitaro that once again, these two women deserve a raise because they really are the best of what ESPN represents. Rebecca Lobo is ESPN's longtime lead analyst for women's college basketball. You will see her during the tournament in the studio, as well as obviously um, at games. Holly Rowe, you will see at the Final Four as well in her usual position as uh, both sideline reporter and sort of uh, on-court analyst. They're not only really good at what they do when it comes to women's basketball, they're, they're two of the biggest champions of the sport. And I think you can really draw a line between the sport increasing in popularity, including the viewership, to um, these two being apostles for the sport and using all their means, including social media, to get that out there. And without further ado... Rebecca Lobo, Holly Rowe, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm honored to be on here, um, mostly because I get to be on here with Rebecca, so thank you. 
it's only fitting because all the best uh, stuff we do in the world of women's basketball, we get to do it together, whether it's WNBA finals or the NCAA tournament. So yeah, thanks for having us both on. And Richard, since there have been occasions, and I think it's more than one where um, I, you know, I went to wear a dress. This is in particular, we were in Minnesota. I don't know if it was a finals game or regular season. I went to wear a dress for the first time, cut the tags off. And the seam was split. And um, this is the kind of teammate Holly Rowe is. She loaned me one of her garments of clothing. Somehow, shockingly, it fit. And, uh, and I wore it to call a game on air that day. So this, this is the kind of partnership that we've got going. Oh, nice. That's, uh, that's, 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 that's Jordan Pippen, you know, <laughs> Kobe Shaq. That's, that's, that's nice. Uh, and by the way, you know, I know this because obviously I, uh, you know, at Sports Illustrated, I covered wins best for a long time. Uh, Holly Rowe and, and Rebecca Lobo genuinely like each other. Like this is a real friendship off the air. That, that is not always the case in broadcasting. You could bullshit and fake it on a podcast like this, but these two are, uh, these two are tight. And, um, and I do think it reflects when they're on air together. All right, Holly, I'm going to start with you. There's, you know, there's a lot of people who are, who listen to this podcast who, are either young in the business or who want to get into the business. And a lot of times when I ask questions about process and preparation, you know, they learn something from it. So if you would, um, and I know you have other responsibilities now, including working for the uh, jazz broadcast, but specific to the women's tournament, just take me through your preparation, specifically how you prepare for this, uh, you know, this three week, um, this three week assignment. Yeah, well, I think that one of my biggest things that I've learned over the years is watching games is really important because you can read a million articles. But the first time you see Cameron Brink, who if you only have seen her social media or you've only read art articles about her, you're like, she's not tough. Look how she looks. You know, you, you might form an opinion based on who she is off the court. Then you watch a game and this is one tough mf'er and and she's the defensive player of the year and she wants to be strong and fierce on the court and so i think the most important thing you can do in my job is to observe i am the world's greatest observer and i'll tell you why i'm just nosy i love watching people i watch people in the airport in hotel lobby you know like it's just something that my brain does and i think through observation you learn about people so then you know what to ask so if I see somebody do something and, and I get to the whys of it, I think that's what viewers like. So number one, I watch a ton of games, ton of game film, and then talking to people. I've done interviews with almost, I would say the top 20 female players going into the tournament. I've already talked to them. I've done Zooms to prepare. I have all kinds of background story information, photos, family pictures, off the court stuff. And so I've tried to do a lot of my work before the tournament starts, because once it gets here, it gets fast and furious. And then I do a game board, which is, um, you know, like a lot of broadcasters do where I have all their stats, all their information on one place so that I can refer to it quickly. But most of the time I've just memorized that as I've built the game board. And then lastly, I do all my own stats during the game. And I have people ask me all the time, well, why do you do that? You get a stat sheet, you have a stat monitor. The way I do my stats, I can tell if there's been runs. I can tell if one player's gotten hot. I can tell somebody hasn't scored since the first half. Um, it, it tells me the story within the story of the game to do my own stats during the broadcast. Uh, Rebecca, I have the same question for you. Rebecca, did you see how close we were to Holly Rowe actually dropping the word motherfucker on this podcast? That would have been an incredible moment for this podcast, but we were, we were close. So the same, um, the same question for you, Rebecca. And again, you know, you have a really 
tricky assignment, at least to me, in that you one, you're in the studio throughout this tournament. So you're a studio analyst, which means you really have to be broad and essentially know all 68 teams in the tournament. Then you're going to have a game assignments when you really have to dial down on the two teams that are in front of you. Well, first, I want to just revisit Holly for a second, because um, the sponge that is her brain is 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 remarkable. We'll be calling a game, uh, a WNBA game, a player maybe in their sixth or seventh season and something will come up and Holly will say, you know what? That triggers something. I remember when she was a sophomore in college or or and she'll remember a story and she'll be able to go back to those game boards that she was mentioning, find the story. I mean, it is it is remarkable. The um, the institutional knowledge Holly not only has, but but retains. Um, and in terms of my role, it's a completely different. It's completely different preparing for studio than it is preparing for a game. You know, when you're preparing for a game, you're diving into those two teams, watching a lot of film of those two teams and and you know, their notes and all that sort of stuff. Well, when you're in studio um, and not even for the tournament, what's, what's fortunate for me is I'm in studio uh, almost every Sunday um, from in January and February, and, and we may have two or three games on our air, but we're doing highlights from every single top 25 matchup or, or a game that involves a top 25 team. So all, all season I'm, I'm preparing so I'm ready to talk about all of those teams that we might be doing highlights for throughout the course of the year. So it's not like there's this, there is a, still cramming that's happening right now as we get ready to tip off the tournament with the first four on Wednesday. Um, but there's also been prep that's been done, um, you know, all year long. And fortunately for me, I think I've been back in the studio. I don't know exactly how many years it is now, um, but maybe seven or eight. And uh, so there's that, you know, that institutional base to that, um, that is built up. That's, uh, that's certainly a, a, a pool that you can wade into a little bit. Rebecca, I'm going to stick with you. Um, this year's tournament is different. Uh, 68 teams, first four, use of the trademark March Madness, uh, things like the tournament gifts that the, men players and the women players get for participating in each round will be the same. Uh, all the women's final four teams will get their own players lounge at each hotel, which hasn't happened before. And the men have always had. Um, so I got a couple questions on this, but, but to start with, um, does it feel different to you? I, these things are significant changes, but like when you talk to coaches and players, like, do they think it feels different than previous tournaments? I think we'll have to see, you know, we'll be able to have those conversations um, once the players have had a chance to enjoy the players lounge. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued by, by how the players feel about it all. Um, you know, when, when, when my UConn team back in 1994, 95, when we went um, to the final four, I remember all of us on the, the team being so excited because we were getting the same amount of meal money that the guys always got. Like that was a big deal to us, you know, because we, we knew how that we had been getting less. And then we got to, to charter to the final four. And I believe it was only the second time in my four years at UConn that we got to, to charter. And the other time that we got to charter was because we were playing at Kansas, a double header um, with our men's team. And so we were just kind of riding the plane with them, but those things really mattered to us. This was exciting. It was a big deal. It was a little bit of extra cash. It was a, a chartered flight. It was 
we were being treated the way the men were being treated. And, and for a 19 or 20 year old girl, that was a really, really big deal. So I will, I imagine that the women um, will feel that way this year. The difference is they have the gratitude knowing they're the ones that drove the conversation and it's their action that um, made those things um, come to fruition this year. That's really well said, Holly. I, I want you to add to that, but I'll also add the question of um, if you want to um, give the listeners your thought. You know, there there are there has been talk of this for a long time, and there probably will continue to be talk about the NCAA uh, having both Final Fours in the same city on the same weekend, or having both Final Fours in the same city on multiple weekends. But this again is all part of this. Um, you know, the Kaplan report, which examined all the inequities of uh, the sport that we've seen for quite some time. Yeah. So I want to start at the beginning because I think this was a, a seminal moment in women's sports because for the first time, both events were being held the same way. You know, it's hard to compare things when they are different um, and they're organized differently, but because both both the men's and women's were in bubbles, exactly the same setup, exactly the same format. Um, the comparison was very glaring. And I actually want to give some credit to um, a woman named Allie um, and her last name just escaped me, but she was the strength and conditioning coach for Stanford women's basketball. And she was actually the first person to tweet the weight room situation. Um, she, she's the first one and, and she doesn't get the credit, but I think she deserves it. And, you know, I was at home in New York and my bosses called me and said, you've got to go down early to the bubble. There's there's this thing with the weight room. And I was kind of intimately involved with it because I'm friends with a lot of the strength coaches and they had me on the text chain showing me all this information. So when I got down there, what I found was all of the weight equipment was there and they were going to set up big weight rooms for the women. They just had made a mistake that they didn't have them set up for the first week. They thought that they should have an extra ballroom instead for practice facility instead of the weight room setup. And, and so some of that information is not accurate of what's being portrayed, but what it did bring out is that there were major glaring differences. And Sedona Prince is the one, um, the Oregon basketball player who kind of went viral with her posts. So I talked to Sedona about this and I said, you know, I'm really grateful for you because I think the older generation, you know, my age, Rebecca's age, your age, we sometimes tend to believe the institution or believe authority in a way like, you know, we, we like the system, the system has worked. And I'm kind of looking at it like, well, the NCAA meant well, or, you know, like you make all these excuses for the system. And Sedona was unapologetic, like, absolutely not. This has to change. And I think the younger people push us. And I told her, I said, I want to thank you. I was kind of like on the NCAA, like, well, they, they were trying, they had it all there. They were ready to have the weight room. Instead, we need to be saying, why is it this way? And that's what this younger generation is teaching us. And I appreciate it. So I just was at the, um, in Indianapolis, actually, yesterday and talking with Dan Gabbett, who is the senior vice president of basketball, Lynn Holzman, the vice president of basketball for women. And I, I, we asked the question, why has it taken this long? I don't think I even realized that the women weren't allowed to use the title March Madness or that it wasn't painted on the courts. And, and the way they were treating the women was so separate. It was shocking as we go back and look at it. So I, I you know, I tried to be pleasant about it, but I also wanted to ask the question, why has this taken so long? I think they did a good job answering that, but that I literally made them pinky swear. 
Um, we are going to continue to change this because it's ridiculous. At this time in our, in our country, in our lives and society, why we treat genders differently is ridiculous. Like it's got to stop. And I think they are doing a good job. And, and Richard, I know you've said that the NCAA has been doing it wrong for so long. Why are we applauding them for doing it right? And I have a little different opinion on that is like, yeah, let's applaud the NCAA for moving quickly on this. This is the quickest change we've ever seen in the history of the NCAA, these sweeping changes. I think it's good. You know, let's let's be happy for them and say, hey, good job. Let's keep pushing it. Uh, Rebecca, Holly Rowe is an infinitely nicer person than me, so I will never praise the NCAA on this topic. But but I I don't know, I abs- Richard, did you see because it was on television when Holly had Dan Gavitt and Lynn Holzman pinky swear her at the same time while we were on TV? I was like, oh, Holly Rowe can ask people these questions. And then end an interview saying, pinky swear that you'll do better. It was I know. Vintage, that is amazing. Uh, vintage yeah. Holly so Rowe. This is the genius of Holly Rowe. All right, but Rebecca, I do want to ask you this because, again, you know, I, I've covered both tournaments. Uh, now, obviously, my experience with the women's Final Four is much. I covered not as much as you two, but maybe 13 or 14 during my time at SI, something to that effect. And, you know, you really, when you cover the men's tournament, like, there's a difference. I mean, there's just a difference in the – the largeness of it, the the impact of it, all the sort of the sponsorship around it. I mean, you know, it was in many times it was sometimes it was in much bigger stadiums. So like you just you became aware of it. That said, and, I, you know, you guys are obviously um, you know sort of much, much closer and have much more impactful voices than me. I kind of like the idea of having like a super basketball uh you know, week or two weeks where both Final Fours would be in the same place. I, I understand the arguments that you want to sort of have your own separate tournament. You don't want to get lost in the men. But I look at it as like you'd have so much media attention on both. And you could like do creative things to get fans to sort of watch both games. Like I think it would grow the women's game. But I c- concede that, uh, you know, there are other arguments that suggest that that it, that separate is better. How do you see this, Rebecca? Because there are... You know, we are, I think, going to start to see more people um, at least propose the notion of, you know, hey, maybe we can make this like sort of this incredible basketball celebration, have the women's title game like this Sunday and then the men's title game in the same city the following Sunday kind of thing. But then people have to stay. You know, I I just don't trust that that means um, uh, media outlets or different entities would then say, all right, you know, you guys are out there. We'll spring for you to be out there for another week to stay and cover the women. Cause it's usually different people covering the men and the women anyway. Um, you know, I, I think it's worth trying stuff. I think it's worth trying stuff. You know, we went back to a selection Sunday this year instead of a selection Monday. Um, I don't think the day of the week at all impacts whether or not it's, there's equality there. Um, you know, and I understand the first four play, played into it as well. Um, you know, what happens next year? Well, let's look at the ratings and and was it better? And, 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 and in terms of the preparedness to get ready for the games, was it better to do it Sunday? Is it better to do it Monday? Um, it does it really make sense for the women to have a first four? Well, we don't know un, until we do it. So um, I'm absolutely in favor of trying stuff. And, uh, and, you know, maybe that means one year they do try, um, try the, the women's final four and the men's in the same city. And, um, and maybe it does have the intended effect and maybe people do stay and maybe there, there is, um, you know, more eyes on the sport or more coverage on the sport as a result. Um, but then you have to be nimble enough that that if you try something and it doesn't work, you acknowledge that and and uh, and move on. 
Yeah, maybe the same week, the same three day weekend uh, for both. But I, I, you're, you're. I think actually, you make a great point. I, I'm not, I'm not convinced either that media outlets would keep their people in for another week. No, I, I'm with you on that. I think that's you know what. You know. The, the, Go ahead, Ollie. I thought our bubble format for the women's tournament last year. If I ran the NCAA, I would do that every year. I can't even tell you how awesome it was. One city, in same one city. city with every team, all the teams were there. All the fan bases were there. There was a buzz in San Antonio. Um, you know, teams could stay and watch other teams play. Fans could stay and watch other teams play. There was a collective strength in all of the teams being in one place. And it was a neutral city and fans knew in advance and everybody could come. And it was awesome. Just imagine if we had been able to have like normal fans and not a, you know, shrunken, attendance because of COVID protocols. I, I thought that was so cool. Rebecca, um, I want to ask if this stuff ever gets down to the on-air talent. I mean, you're aware of it, but I just wonder if you're part of the discussions of, uh, of the impact and what it might mean. So last year's Stanford-Arizona Women's Championship game averaged 4.1 million viewers. It beat American Idol in adults, 13 to 30, adults 18 to 34 and adults 18 to 49. Those are the money demographics when it comes to advertising. Some of the title game numbers over the last 10 years, uh, UConn over Notre Dame in 2014, 4.27 million viewers. Uh, Baylor over Notre Dame in 2012, 4.24 million viewers. South Carolina over Mississippi State in 2017, 3.89 million viewers. These are These are mega numbers in sports television you have to forget about the nfl because nothing touches the nfl and you obviously can't compare this to like the net college football national championship or whatever or like the world series or the nba finals but you start like com- you can you can compare these title game numbers rebecca and holly to almost all, everything else like you know what i mean this is beating like mlb postseason this destroys most of the nhl postseason not let alone the regular season game does it ever get to your level, Rebecca, where the discussion of the viewership uh, happens with on-air talent? And do they ever just even ask you guys why you think this is and how you think we can continue to sort of keep this momentum going, particularly for the Final Four and for the national championship game? Um, I think it does within the, the people who work on women's basketball, for sure. Uh, you know, they're the ones who will, you know, a few days later or whatever, share the rating with us. Um And, you know, the people who work on women's basketball, whether it's WNBA or women's college basketball, um, are the biggest proponents of the sport at ESPN. You know, they're they're working, they're pushing, they want all the right things and all the good things um, for the game. And and I think one thing that's really gratifying for me, even beyond the, the ratings numbers, is the level of play. I mean, the games you talked about were incredible basketball games. They were exciting basketball games. Um, sometimes there's there can be something, you know, nothing more disappointing than a big uh, buildup to this, you know, what you hope is an incredible matchup. And then it's a, you know, a crappy game. That hasn't been the case um, for most of the women's basketball games that that we've promoted or covered, whether it's in the regular season or in particular in the tournament in the final four. So I think we, we're really proud of the product. We're really proud of the, the rating results. Um, you know, the conversations that happen at ESPN or elsewhere outside of the, the, the women's um, basketball uh, bubble that's within within. I don't know what any of those conversations are. Holly, did you want to add anything on the uh, the viewership numbers? I think both of you guys know this that uh, 
you know, I've been drumming either uh, on Twitter at Sports Illustrated, The Athletic, for Disney one day to put the title game on ABC. I think it. I actually think it's going to happen. It didn't happen this year, which is annoying, but I do think it's coming. If nothing else, um, I love the fact that this year's game is in primetime on ESPN on Sunday. And like the average listener uh, who's listening to this podcast may be like, well, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. No, it really does. Like starting a game at eight o'clock versus six o'clock has a significant difference in the viewership in the same way putting the game on ESPN has a significant impact on the viewership. So if nothing else, I think that was a great move to see that this game will now be more accessible to more people in primetime. Yeah, I think what I would say is I have literally devoted most of my life to pushing, covering, promoting, advocating for women's sports my whole life. And the thing that I get irritated or frustrated by is we have to continue to jump through all these hoops to prove that we're worthy to be on ESPN, to be on ABC. Well, did it rate? You know, we gave it a big window. Did it do okay? And and the women keep proving themselves on every level that there's interest, the quality of the product is there, and they deserve it. So what I'd like us to get to the point of conversation is let's just give them bigger opportunities. Why do we have to keep jumping through all the hoops? You know what? We did softball on ABC this year. Monster ratings. We're going to have softball on ABC um, during postseason this year, I believe. You know, we'll get monster ratings. And so what I want to see the conversation be is ESPN and our bosses and everybody just give women bigger opportunities, bigger windows, bigger platforms. Don't make us jump through all these hoops to pretend like we have to earn it. The men just get opportunities. The NHL hasn't proven to be a big raider, and we're just giving them these big windows and big opportunities right now. Well, what if we just did that for women's sports? That would be awesome. And so I I think they're finally figuring out that if you build it, they will come. If you give it a big platform, you'll be rewarded with the big rating, period. Softball is just an unbelievably... uh, uh it's a great television sport. Uh, ESPN, to be very blunt, is very lucky that these tournaments are not open to uh, bidders because, like, you'd be surprised at, at who might be interested in these properties, particularly women's softball has always been just like an unbelievable uh, television draw. I don't think most people have any clue as to how many millions College World Series draws. Uh, I'm going to get to the storylines in a minute. I have one more sort of off-the-court thing, and then we'll get to a couple of um, – of uh, basketball related stuff, which, uh, which, which will be fun for me. I, um, I asked Pat Lowry, um, one of your executives, Rebecca, uh, about whether we will see in the not too distant future, talk of point spreads, odds, gambling information on women's basketball tournament coverage. And she thinks it's inevitable. Uh, she didn't expect a lot of it this year, but just the, the realities of more states legalizing gambling, it just would make sense that eventually uh, people like in your position in the studio might talk about like how much uh, you know Kentucky or Louisville are favored in this game. Where do you stand on this in terms of do you think um, can 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 legalize gambling increase women's basketball viewership? Because in theory, you know, if you're interested in gambling and interested in gambling on sports. You know, you've got a lot of opportunities in women's basketball, particularly the tournament, just like the men. You have all these particular games you could bet on. I'm I'm not a gambler, so I, I can't speak to that all that well. I do know that I don't I don't really watch much um, football, but I'm in a fantasy football league with my son and it makes me pay attention to the NFL in ways I wouldn't otherwise. Right. Um, so absolutely. I think opening up um, women's sports 
WNBA women's college basketball to gambling absolutely will have an impact and uh, and will get people to, to pay closer attention. It seems like that's just the way the world works now. Holly, what about you? I mean, would it be uh, would it be I mean, you'd do it, obviously, if it was sort of part of the storyline, but it, would it be different or odd for you to be talking about like the point spread of a certain game prior to kicking it to whoever the play by play and an analyst were of that game? Yeah, I don't know that I would ever do that because, number one, I'm bad at math and I can't figure out the, the information for gambling because I can't do the math on it quick enough. That's really true. Well, you have a producer in your ear, Holly. Just repeat. I know, I know. Doris Burke has a funny saying, don't let me do math on TV. And I, I abide by that as well. Um, I do think it would intre- increase interest. I think that because of our relationship with the NCAA, you know, we talk about this in college football all the time. And I think what ESPN is doing of having separate shows that are the daily wager or other people that aren't covering the sport doing all that kind of talking. I think that's more what you would see. And I would like that more because I think it's imperative to obtain our um, neutrality and just, you know, kind of pristine presentation of sports that don't involve gambling talk. That's just my own personal opinion, but I do think having, you know, the WNBA this year is rolling out a fantasy league for the first time. I think it's going to be huge. I think it's absolutely going to be huge. And if there's ways to earn money and make money on this, it only increases the pot and the pool of people that will be interested in the money that can be made. All right. And I just, go ahead, Rebecca. And I just on, on that same topic, just clarify. Yeah, I wouldn't want to specifically be talking about it. I mean, we're in shoot arounds. We know that a certain player may or may not play in a game, even though the coach isn't going to release that till right prior to tip. I think we need to maintain that level of credibility and uh, those relationships. And, you know, it's best for those of us covering the games to, to not have to say anything other than, you know, if a host is going to say what the point spread might be for a game. Yeah, it's interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because there's re- you know you could the reality is you two can move a line if you know something about a star player that the public doesn't know, and so these are issues. Obviously, the ESPNs and the Foxes, CBS, all these places are going to have to figure out how they navigate that because it will be the same premise premise of an announcer in the NFL knowing something before the game starts, and if uh, if if an announcer blurts that out, like the you know the spread can change very quickly. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rebecca, I'm going to stick with you. I'm really fascinated by the two seeds in this tournament. Um, Iowa, Texas, uh, UConn, and Baylor. Out of those four number two seeds, who, in your opinion, is the most dangerous number two seed? The number two seed that you think could you'd give the best chance to win the tournament and why? Ooh, I think they're all capable. 
I think they're all capable. It's, it's, uh, you know, Iowa, because of Caitlin Clark, when you have a guard that can impact the game, the way she can impact a game, it just completely changes your team. Um, you know, kind of Diana Taurasi, like in that way. And, um, and UConn has that note too, except we just don't know exactly what, um, in terms of Paige Beckers, how healthy is she, you know, what, what version of Paige are we going to get? The one, the one we've seen the last five games since she came back from injury has been really good, but it's still not the one we saw at the beginning of the season or last year. Um, but with two weeks off between the Big East tournament and the first round of the NCAA tournament, you know, what changes there? Um, Texas is really intriguing to me in particular because they're in the Spokane region because Stanford lost three games all season, three. And one of the teams they lost to is their number two seed. And, uh, and, and Texas beat them in Palo Alto early in the year. And granted, both teams are different and Stanford is much improved since then. But uh, it, Texas, in the way they play defense too, they, they just play defense different from any, anybody else. The way they pick you up, how physical they are. We saw that last year in the Sweet 16 matchup with Maryland, you know, an all gas, no breaks team. And, and Texas said, yeah, here's your breaks. And, and Texas is a much better team this year than they were last year. Um, and then, uh, and then of course, Baylor, uh, you know, they've got a star player themselves with Melissa Smith. So, so I was actually texting Charlie cream this morning. I said, it feels like the number two seeds this year are better than they've ever been. And he, uh, he said, well, hold on. Cause the number two seeds a year ago were really good as well. But, um, but I'm with you, you know, it would not be surprising to me, um, you know, to see any of those two seeds come out of the region. And except, you know, South Carolina is just so good. They're just so good. I think maybe Iowa coming out of there as a two seed w- would be the most surprising, at least to me. Holly, I want to ask you about NC State. Uh, they're a number one seed, and obviously they've had a phenomenal year, uh, you know, whatever they, they are, 29-3 and three or something like that. But I find them sort of hard to evaluate because they did lose to South Carolina. They lost to Georgia. Uh, which was a tight game, and then they lost, if I remember, I think to Notre Dame. Um, and when you look at their wins, um, you know, again, 29-3 is 29-3. You can't argue with it. But they don't have necessarily like a couple of big signature wins over, uh, you know, top five teams. So I, I'm not saying they don't deserve a number one seed. They certainly do. But um, I don't know. I get, If you were asking me, like, if there was one number one seed I could see knocked off, uh before the final four, they would be my first choice. How do you see them? Yeah, I think that they are a really good team and I think they're better than people are giving them credit for. We did a game earlier in the year and Rebecca helped me with this, but I'm pretty sure they were down. um, I think it was many as 16 points to Louisville, who was ranked number two at the time. And they came back and won that game. Now it was at home at NC state home court advantage, But we've seen them perform at a high level and be really, really good. They had a key injury to one of their bigs last year um, in the first round of the tournament or second round of the tournament that kind of changed the complexion of their ability last year in the NCAA tournament. So they got upset. They're whole and healthy this year. And so I think they're a team that people just don't know well enough to know how good they are. But I also think they're a team that has to hit shots to to be at that level and if they're not hitting from the outside you know allows people to collapse on Alyssa Kinane Alisa Kinane who is their big who is so dynamic and can really move and is a great fun player to watch so they're an intriguing team but I, I really like them we've seen them in person this year Rebecca I'd love your opinion on them too 
Yeah. And I think one thing on the women's side, even more than on the men's side is, uh, you know, NC State has three graduate students um, who play significant roles for them. And um, you see that on the men's side in the mid majors, but not necessarily in the power programs, like because, you know, the guys are the one and done or whatever. But you see it a lot more. And, and of course, now because of the covid year. But these players, uh, you know, were, were, were disappointed and chose to come back. And Westmore, when we were there doing that that game, Holly mentioned to us how when they were, you know, doing their sweet 16, um, you know, designing their rings for the sweet 16. And they asked the players, you want to have, you know, three consecutive sweet 16s or whatever on the ring. And they said, absolutely not. That's not our goal. You know, our, our, they were disappointed with their finish last year when Indiana upset them. And, um, and it, it feels like a team that is really focused um, experienced on a mission, playing playing really good basketball. Um, they just got the tough draw of 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 not only UConn as their two seed, but having to um, you know, assuming they advance, play play those games in in Bridgeport. I want to uh, stick with you, Rebecca, and ask you about Stanford. They've won twenty in a row. They rolled through the Pac-12 regular season, but they did have some close games. Um, near the end of the season, you know, Haley Jones is obviously a phenomenal player. Cameron Brink has come on this year and they're, you know, they, they obviously, you know what they did last year. Um, they're obviously one of the dangerous teams in this tournament. Do you like them better this year than you did last year? Or do you see some places where maybe you can attack, uh, Stanford? Um, I, I like Stanford a lot this year. I, 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 you know, they, they returned everybody except the most important position on the floor with Keanu Williams, their starting point guard a season ago. And, and that's been the area that they've been, been, they've been growing and navigating through this season. You know, when they lost to Texas, I, I brought that game up. It was um, earlier in the season and they had a ton of turnovers and that was the reason they lost. When they lost to South Carolina in Columbia, they had a big lead. And then in the second half, South Carolina turned up the defensive pressure and turnovers was the reason that Stanford lost that game. Um, but since then, and through the course of the Pac-12 season, they've they've figured those things out. Um, Lacey Hall has done a nice job handling the basketball. Anna Wilson has really come along, not only handling the ball, but becoming more comfortable as a scorer and an outside shooter. Um, it's funny because, you know, all season long, the favorite to win the championship has been South Carolina and Stanford's got to be like, Hey, wait, we beat them last year in the final four. We're returning everybody except for one player. How, how is South Carolina the favorite all season long? Um, but certainly they've been on a roll. You know, they haven't lost since that game to South Carolina. I think it was December 21st and um, they're, they're really good. And, and Tara Vanderveer is as good as you get in terms of coaching in the, in the women's game and they will be ready. And um, it's going to be fun to, to watch their watch their journey because as the defending national champion, as the best team in the Pac-12, they still feel like they've gone under the radar a little bit this year. All right, Holly, I'm going to keep going to different storylines. I want to ask you about LSU. They're a number three seed in the Spokane region. Uh, you know, Kim Mulkey is always worth the price of admission. Uh, you know, just the you know, networks would be smart. You just have a Mulkey fan basically watch I her swear to game. You. And you, you remember yeah, seriously. Years I mean, ago, we did a Maya Moore ISO cam, and I, I actually do. that yeah. same year I pitched to our bosses we need a, an ISO cam for Kim Mulkey at all times because it is the most entertaining thing you've ever seen. 
Yeah, and again, I, I'm not saying this pejoratively. I, th- she really walks the line of genius and crazy, and so like it, and that's good television, just to be blunt. But in terms of a basketball coach, she's phenomenal. Uh, Ella, I didn't expect LSU to be this high a seed uh, at all. At, if you ask me, at the start of the year, so I think the, one of the great coaching jobs in America, um, you know, they're in a they're in a regional with Stanford, as Rebecca just let you know, and Texas, Kentucky's in that region. Uh, you know, Maryland has some players um, that are dangerous. Uh, Nebraska is in Mulkey's. You might, I think if LSU and Nebraska each win their games, they they meet each other. Um, one, what do you make of the job she did this year? And two, I don't know. Do you give them any kind of shot as like a sleeper team that maybe makes some noise here? Yes, because I think if you have Kim Mulkey, you have a wild card. Um, she has gotten this team to buy in and to do, you know, she builds every program she's ever built on defense. And so if they will defend, they can beat anybody. I mean, anybody. And they they are limited from a talent perspective. I think, you know, her roster is not full of McDonald's All-Americans like we've seen it at Baylor for the past, you know, 20 years with her. But I think that she has gotten the most out of the players she does have. They've bought into the system. They're defending hard. And, you know, she, she ha- the reality is she has limitations on the roster, but if they play with passion and great defense, they can beat anybody. And, you know, you named a lot of teams in that region that can, can, can win. I think Maryland is not getting talked about enough. You know, they had a disappointing exit last year after being the number one offense in the country all season. They're different. They're good. I think they could be a team that makes some noise in the NCAA tournament. So that region, I think, is really, really tough. But if you have Kim Mulkey, you have a wild card. Um, her passion and her preparation uh, can get you wins in the NCAA tournament. Oh, I just wanted to tag on to that. Like a, a thing we just really need to keep our eye on with LSU is the health of Alexis Morris. She got hurt in the SEC tournament, second leading scorer for that team behind Kayla Pointer. And, uh, and it was an MCL sprain. So that, to me... If she is healthy or, or close to healthy and able to do what she can do, they certainly can make some noise. But if she's not, it, it's going to be a bigger challenge for LSU. Okay, I got three more here, and then I will let you guys go. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Mulkey's former team, uh, Baylor, and the job that uh, Nikki uh, Collin did this year. You know, I get it. Like, you know, you're taking over a program that's one of the great programs in the country. Nalissa Smith is a WNBA player who – um, who obviously is fantastic, but that was not Rebecca and easy. I mean, replace every single, it's not just women's basketball. If you look historically at sports, one of the hardest things to do um, is to replace like a legendary figure at a university. And almost, you almost never want to be that person. You want to be the person, you know, the second person, you want to be the person who replaces the coach who replaced the famous coach, but she did a great job. And um, while I would not pick them to win, They've had an excellent year. What do you what do you make of Valor post post Mulkey? Well, just because we were, we were just talking about Kim Mulkey before this, um, if, <laughs> I did a Baylor game earlier this year um, before before the calendar turned, and one of the things Nikki Collins said is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> one of the things Nikki Collins said is that some of the fans um, back in Waco were upset with her because she was like wearing the quarter zip and the um, joggers on the sideline. <laughs> And not like, you know, 
dressing to the nines like Kim Mulkey did or, or behaving differently on the sidelines than Kim Mulkey did. So not only did she have to, you know, come in there and, uh, and try to coach this team up, there's an expectation of what, how she was going to behave while she was doing it. Wow, fashion, um, fashion expectations. That's tough. That's a tough job. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe just not enough glitter, not enough glitter or sequence. Um, but uh, I mean, she's done she's done an incredible job, and of course, you know, she was left with some really good players, and and also some really good players came in as as graduate transfers. Um, but a, a Baylor team that offensively plays much differently. I mean, we grew accustomed to Kim Mulkey's Baylor teams winning championships, whether it was in the Big Twelve or national championships, by playing old school basketball, dominating in the paint you know, pounding the ball inside to their talented bigs. And while shooting a really high percentage from three, hardly taking any of them for a lot of years, they were in the bottom five in terms of three point attempts per game. And then here comes a coach from the pros who's like, no, that's not how exactly how we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, they've still been really good in the paint. Of course you have to be. Melissa Smith is one of my favorite players to watch in all of uh, women's college basketball, but you've got a team now that's playing in a system where three pointer is a, a really big part of what they do. And, uh, you know, they, they make just under seven threes a game. They've got a balanced attack, a, a, a short roster. They really only play seven in their rotation. Um, not nine players who, who, who are on the roster, eight on scholarship. Um, but she's made the most of it. And, and this is a team that early on in the season, I felt like they're, they're finding their way, they're figuring it out, but of course they are. There's so much here that's going on. That's new. And then they went on that incredible run um, at the end of the Big 12 season until they, they met Texas in the Big 12 championship where they were looking like a team who had figured it out and figured one another out and how they were going to play with this new coach. And, um, you know, Nikki Collin did a remarkable job, as did her players, uh, you know, kind of figuring out their way this year. All right. Two more here. Uh, Holly, I uh, one of the last... Um women's final fours that I covered was when um, South Carolina won behind Asia Wilson. And I remember that year, whenever, uh, obviously South Carolina had a very, very, you know, deep team, but there were just moments whenever like they were in a little bit of trouble in a game, they could run a play for Asia Wilson. She would get a basket and like things would settle down. Aaliyah Boston, I think has rightfully uh, earned the tag as one of the best players in in the women's game this year, if not the best player, she's essentially a double double every night. Um, she's going to clearly be drafted super high for the uh, for the WNBA. Um, how much of an impact do you think she can make on this specific tournament? And is she the type of player, in your opinion, that again, when South Carolina absolutely needs a basket to 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 advance in a game that they absolutely has to have to win? Where's your confidence level lie with her? My confidence level is very high with Aaliyah. She has proven at every moment, at every level, that she is capable of doing this. But one thing I do worry about is you might remember in the game against Stanford last year, she had a layup to win the game and go to the national championship game and missed what, what she's made a thousand times in her life and will make a thousand more times in her life. And so, you know, you wonder about how that gets in somebody's head. I don't expect it to. She's a mentally strong kid and unbelievable player. But for me... Um, Don Staley will get mad at me for saying this, but there are times this year when I'm literally yelling at the TV watching South Carolina because I think they go too many stretches without getting her the ball. And I think South Carolina's ability to win a national championship will depend on the guards and their ability to be unselfish and get Aaliyah Boston the ball. She has proven to nearly be unstoppable. 
and they just go too many possessions where she doesn't touch it. Um, and, and I'm literally in my living room yelling at the TV, get it to Aaliyah, you know, like it's crazy. So I, I think that the guards are the key to South Carolina's success in how balanced can they be and how unselfish can they be and how, how well can their shot selection serve their team concept. Rebecca, you want to add, I mean, as a, you know, former All-American center, you want to add to this conversation? Yeah. I mean, a big is always at the mercy of her guards. It's it's just the truth of the matter. And so you ask, you know, is Aaliyah Boston a player who you can get the ball to and she can and score and finish and come through? Yes. And But to, to agree with Holly, it's more of, all right, but when she's surrounded by three or four, <laughs> which she might be, um, how can her guards respond? And she's got terrific guards around her. Um, you know, Destiny Henderson has has played great all year. Zaya Cook has been a little bit more up and down, I think, than, than people expected. And that was their problem in the, in, in the second half, in particular, the fourth quarter against Kentucky in the SEC championship game was, um, you know, they weren't able to make those shots uh, from the perimeter. They weren't able to get those shots um, that they wanted from their guards. And they've made a living all year. Their bigs have getting to the offensive glass and scoring there. But in a crunch moment, South Carolina has guards who can make the plays it's just a question of um of will they and uh and and you know if i had to bet on it i i, I would i would say they will this this is a group that's grown up a lot that had that had the taste of it last year and and left um the final four with heartbreak um and who knows maybe the, exactly what they needed was what they saw in that sec championship game against kentucky and um and 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 they will you know use that as the the thing that propels them forward all right, last one. We'll start with Rebecca, and then Holly, you can finish. I want to uh, end with your alma mater, Rebecca. The the as crazy as it is to sort of even sort of utter these words, um, UConn really could be classified as a major sleeper in this tournament, given what they're going to play with in the tournament is essentially not what we have seen for most of this year. I think if this group is healthy, like uh, to me, they're they have a good chance to win the NCAA tournament as any team because we have not seen UConn, I think, at its full injury-free best in a long time. Again, I don't know the health of all the players, and I think, Rebecca, you know this from having played. You know, We really will never know how, if, if anybody's 100% at this sort of time of the year, but man, this is one team I would not want to play if I saw them in the tournament, just given who's going to be back. How do you see them? Well, as my 17-year-old says to me far more often than I would like, facts, facts. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything you said is just so true. I, I, was, uh, I was watching UConn. I think it was Paige Becker's first game back against St. John's. And, uh, and I understand, you know, St. John's is, is not a tournament team this year. But I'm sitting there watching UConn do things before Paige Becker's even was in the game. And, and at the end of that game said, this is a, this is a team capable of winning a championship. This team, you know, five weeks ago when they lost to Villanova did not look like a team capable of winning a championship, but the way they're playing now, they certainly are. And, and a lot of it is they've gotten healthy and they're a much better team right now because of all the struggles they went through earlier. Like Caroline Ducharme for stretches when players were hurt, AZ Fudd's hurt, Paige Beckers is hurt. Caroline Ducharme was their best player and the player they needed to carry the load on the offensive end of the floor. Freshman Caroline Ducharme, who probably 
would have, you know, maybe, I don't know how many minutes she would have gotten if, if everybody else had stayed healthy all season. Um, and then she gets banged up, but AZ Fudd comes back and is a completely different player now than when she was dealing with um, her leg issues early in the season. You know, Paige Becker still isn't hundred percent healthy. We don't know how healthy she will get, but still she is, um, you know, I don't think uh, most other schools in the country would, uh, would not, you know, take her and start her at, at the capacity she is now. So they're, they're really, really dangerous. And um, they've been through a lot of fires this year. And uh, you know, when we've seen UConn be really good in past years and win championships, one of the things that separated them is not only what they can do physically, but it's been their mental toughness in certain moments. And I think this team, because of what they've been through has got to be one of the mentally most prepared and strongest teams going into the tournament. Um, It's really going to be interesting in a a different way than it's been in for a really long time watching UConn in this tournament to see exactly what they are. Every other team, every other, every other year that I can think of when UConn came in the tournament, you knew what they were this year. I don't think we really do yet. That's a great point. And Holly, uh, I mean, Rebecca said it certainly better than I could. The one thing that like, probably will not get talked about, but we may see manifest in front of ourselves is the value of some of these bench players for UConn getting starter minutes when Paige and some others were injured. You have no idea how that may be impactful on a five or six minute stretch where, you know, one of your star players or something gets into a little bit of foul trouble. And now you have a player who's had significant experience during the year uh, come in in that situation. I'm with Rebecca. Like I, if, if you told me tomorrow UConn win the national championship, I wouldn't blink. I'd be like, that's absolutely possible. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I agree because um, as a whole, they're stronger because key role players got bigger minutes and played bigger roles throughout the course of the regular season. Nika Mule is somebody who's become a really good defender. Aliyah Edwards is continuing to improve. Olivia nelson Adota, like Kristen Williams has been holding it down for everybody. And we don't talk about her enough of what she did through all these injuries and some of her own So I think they're stronger as a whole than they have been all season because those role players and other players had to carry the load. And and we're going to see that. Rebecca Lowe, oh, Rebecca Lowe, Rebecca Lowe is a soccer analyst for NBC. Who I know you think very highly of, so you can call me Rebecca Lowe as much as you want. I know that's, but you know, I, I, I did make that mistake too in print once, but thankfully it's the web. So we could, we could, we could fix it quick, but wow. I'm leaving this on by the way, Rebecca Lobo, <laughs> just so you know, I'm going to leave my screw up on there. Rebecca Lobo is an analyst for uh, ESPN. You have seen her for many years when it comes to their women's college basketball coverage and the WNBA. Holly Rowe, of course, has uh, a million jobs from uh, her women's basketball work on the sidelines and being an analyst to her college football work. She also is an analyst for the Utah Jazz. And we were so close to having Holly Rowe actually curse on this podcast that we will try as we head forward. Cause she, will if you have us all on with Doris sure. Burke one time, then watch out because she's the one that taught all of us how to curse like sailors. So that that's the one I'll right. save it for that with a glass of wine. Holly, you, yeah, and both of you can respect this. Doris just resigned, so she's got no problem dropping motherfucker right now. There's not much. She, she is one bad, you know what? <laughs> there you go, Holly. All right, you're getting there close, Holly. I'm proud of you. Um, all right, watch these two women during the tournament. They're basically going to be in your face uh, the whole time. But there's really uh, not many people you'd rather have on this broadcast than them. Rebecca and Holly, it's always great to catch up with you. 
And um, and thanks for always being available to come on this podcast whenever I've asked. Uh, have a great tournament, and thanks for joining. And me thank you for your passion and dedication to women's basketball. The, the kids say it. You're a real one, Richard, and we appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Holly. <laughs> you got it. Thank, thank you, Rebecca. You. Facts, Rebecca. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from you. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Rebecca and Holly. They're awesome. Uh, I love talking to those guys. They're so passionate about women's basketball. And, um, well, you know, the game ultimately is going to bring viewership in. There's no question about that, that you're watching for the game. You're not watching for the announcers. They, um, they've been a big part of growing women's basketball, in, women's college basketball in the U.S. Obviously, Rebecca Lobo is a big part of growing women's basketball in the U.S. just as her, you know, uh, star at UConn and, um, and what her college teams meant. But, uh, you know, they walk the walk on this stuff. They love this stuff, and they're willing to always uh, – be available to talk about the sport so um and really smart and i always enjoy talking women's basketball with them it's one of the things uh uh that i sort of had to give up when i moved from uh sports illustrated to the athletic and also moved obviously from the u.s to canada um so it's just great to sort of catch up with people uh, who i have great admiration for um if you uh you want to head to the archives because there's be all the stuff that you like this week two podcasts tj quinn of espn and Chad Finn were on the other podcast, TJ, talking about his reporting on Brittany Griner and sort of how to navigate very tricky reporting. And Chad Finn and I discuss all the crazy stuff going on with NFL broadcasting. Before that, Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman. Before that, Brian Curtis of The Ringer. And we had a uh, long roundtable with six members of the Canadian sports media. If you like these kind of uh, conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how the podcast continues. My thanks to Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. I appreciate it very much. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.